Let's give it 10 seconds, please. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, that if you want to mute your phone, do star six, and star six lets you unmute it if you want to ask questions when Ira opens this up. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so very pleased to welcome on Accessible World Special Program Series our dear friend and patient friend tonight, Ira Fistel, a noted talk show host who's going to discuss the Battle of Leyte Gulf. And Ira, the telephone is yours, and thank you for your understanding. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Bob. Thank you. Um, the Battle of Leyte Gulf, which took place uh, on October 23rd, 24th, and 25th, 1944, was the last great conflict between naval vessels in the history of the world. Yes, um, and it was one of the most important battles in the Pacific during World War II, and it was 70 years ago this week that uh, it took place. So I thought when uh, you asked me to, what we wanted to do tonight, I said, let's do the Battle of Leyte Gulf. So, Leyte Gulf. Huh? You listen, I'll get the other phone just for a while. Should I just go ahead? Hello, somebody? Yes, Tell me if anybody's talking ahead? there, they should do a star six, please, to mute themselves. So our young lady who was speaking, star six, mute you. Okay, go ahead, Ivor, please. Okay. We're so listening. here we are, uh, the Battle of Lake Golf. Uh, we have to have some background here so that all this makes sense. Japan emerged as a world power only after 1905, because in 1905 the Japanese stunned the world by defeating the Russians in a naval battle at Tsushima Strait in Asia. Uh, the Russians were considered a second-class European power, but nobody thought anybody outside of Europe or the United States was a world power. Uh, they never considered the possibility of an Asian world power. But Japan, under Admiral Togo, defeated the Russians soundly at Tsushima Strait, and all of a sudden people began to look up and see, what's this Japan? Uh, Japan had been a closed country to the rest of the world until, I believe, 1854. Uh, and so in only 50 years, it went from a medieval society to at least a semi-modern Western, westernized society. So Japan did this on the strength of its navy, as I pointed out a moment ago, the naval battle. The catch to Japan's status as a world power is that unique among all the great powers of the world, Japan has very few natural resources of any kind. It has, first of all, no oil whatsoever. It also has very little uh, iron ore, coal. Uh, it doesn't have the big resources that uh, industrialized countries usually use. So Japan has always been totally dependent on its ability to import goods and ship out goods and the Japanese economy to this day is an import-export economy, primarily. 
That means, of course, that Japan has to be able to control the shipping lanes. And that was the reason why the Japanese Navy became so important to the country. All right. After 1905, Japan was on the western edge of the Pacific Ocean, or eastern if you want to cross the international dateline, facing the United States on the other side. And it became almost an article of faith of the Japanese military that someday Japan and the United States would fight over dominance in the Pacific. And this was so ingrained into them that they expected it even when there was no reasonable prospect that that kind of a war was was going to happen. The militarists took control of the country about 1922. Japan was damaged by the Great Depression almost before any other country. And beginning in 1922, it became a fascist state, although fascism uh, was not what they called it. But uh, Japan, it was militarized, and the military, in effect, ran the government. There was a naval conference during that period at which a ratio of 5-5-3 was established between the United States, Great Britain, and Japan. This was a naval conference, and the idea was that Great Britain, which had always been the great naval power in the world for the last two or three hundred years, was entitled to five ships, the United States to five warships, and Japan to three for every five, uh, for every ship, the others had five. Um, did I say that correctly? For every five ships the United States and Britain had, Japan was to have three warships. The Japanese accepted the formula, but they went ahead and built more ships anyway, without uh, the permission of the conference. And then in 1937, Japan attacked and occupied parts of China. Now, this was a very serious step. Because Japan has no oil, its navy depended on its ability to import oil. The ships all ran on oil. Any, any ship that used coal after about 1914 was obsolete. So the Japanese navy was crucial to the country. And having dependable sources of oil was absolutely vital to the Japanese Navy. When Japan attacked China, the United States reacted very, very negatively towards Japan. There were a lot of people in the United States who had sympathy for China and who uh, had connections in China, and there were a very uh, sizable number of Chinese Americans and uh, Japan was not looked upon with uh, good, uh, what would you say, good, good vibes uh, after the 1937 attack on China. So, what does Japan do? If the empire can't import oil, it, the Navy can't live, and if the Navy can't live, the country can't live. Well, what did the United States do after 1937 to show its displeasure with with Japan? The United States government embargoed oil shipments and shipments of scrap metal from the United States to Japan 
knowing, of course, that these were vital elements in the Japanese military picture. All of a sudden, Japan could not import oil from the United States, and it couldn't report it couldn't import all those scrap metal pieces. Uh, during the war, it was a common joke among New Yorkers that uh, when the Japanese were firing, uh, you know, um, weapons at them and uh, big guns, that um, that was another piece of the third uh, of the Sixth Avenue L or the Ninth Avenue L coming back at them <laughs> because all that scrap metal from the old elevators that had been torn down in New York was went to Japan. All right. Japan thus is faced with the problem of how do we get oil if we can't import it from the United States or elsewhere. There's only other one way. By 1941, Japan concluded that if she could not secure oil by purchase, within six months or so, the Navy would become so short of fuel that it wouldn't be able to fight. How do we get the oil if we can't import it? Well, there is one big source of oil reasonably close to Japan, and that was in what is now Indonesia, which is then called the Dutch East Indies. It was a Dutch colony. But the Netherlands would never sell to a partner of Hitler's Germany, Japan figured, and Japan had become part of the uh, Axis because its natural rivals were Britain and the United States. So that meant... If they couldn't buy oil from Netherlands, they'd have to take it. And that meant invading the East Indies. And in turn, that meant that the United States fleet stood between Japan and what it considered to be a vital resource. The Japanese military leaders saw no way of avoiding a war with the United States if the empire attacked you hear it? such cities. And so if war with the United States was going to be inevitable, it would be better to begin it by striking a blow at that American Navy, the one force on Earth which could stop Japan from getting the oil in the East, in the East Indies. And so the Japanese military government had the head of the Japanese Navy a remarkable officer named Isaruku Yamamoto to plan an attack on the Amer- the American base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. They concluded, the Japanese military concluded, that a sudden dramatic strike against the United States fleet would not only secure their access to the resources in oil in, uh, in the East Indies, but it would force the Americans to recognize Japanese hegemony in the Pacific. They saw the United States having trouble trouble uh, trying to support Britain because of the uh, isolationist movement in the United States. And they saw American uh, troops drilling with wooden guns, and they decided that the United States was probably not going to fight, especially if they could destroy the, uh, the U.S. fleet in the Pacific. Well, Yamamoto arranged the Pearl Harbor attack, and he was very good at this. He was a very smart man. He was also the great apostle of aviation in the Japanese Navy. During the 30s, 20s, and 30s, there was a big fight among the battleship admirals 
who believed in big, powerful warships that could shoot guns 20 miles or so, and the younger officers who saw that the future of naval warfare was aircraft carriers carrying planes that could deliver uh, weaponry far, far further than a ship of any kind. I mean, if a big battleship can fire guns 20 miles, an aircraft carrier with planes on it can deliver the same offensive power 300 or 400 miles away. And besides, the aircraft carrier was a fast ship and uh, could outrun big battleships. So the Japanese decided to use air power under Yamamoto and his urging. And Japan built, in the 30s, six big aircraft carriers. The hulls may not have all been designed to be aircraft carriers, but they built six of them. And Yamamoto said, when he was told to uh, draw up an attack on the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor, he said, if you start this war and you expect me to to, uh, lead the fleet, if we strike Pearl Harbor and we knock out the American fleet, for six months I'll be able to go anywhere I want in the Pacific, anywhere you want me to go, and I will run wild. But Admiral Yamamoto had been educated partly in the United States. He had been at Princeton, and he had served in the Japanese embassy in Washington. And he had a much better sense of character, uh, the American character, than anybody else in Japan. And he said, for six months, I'll run wild. But after that, the Americans will fight, they will fight hard, and they have a much bigger industrial base and far more resources than Japan. And if you start this war, you'd better finish it quickly, because America will fight. They ignored him. So he went ahead and, on the orders of his superiors, carried out the Pearl Harbor attack. The six big carriers destroyed land installations and torpedoed and bombed the American battle fleet, the American battleships. The American carriers, however, were not in port at the time, and they escaped. The Japanese were very upset about that. They wanted to get those carriers. All right, this is what happened at Pearl Harbor. Six months, less two days later, the Japanese fleet met the American fleet in a battle at Midway Island and in an incredible series of events, four of the Japanese carriers were sunk in one day. Three of them were put out of action in, in a matter of six minutes by American dive bombers. It was an ambush by the Americans. They knew the Japanese were coming. They knew when and where because they had broken the Japanese code. On top of that, the Japanese didn't have all six of their big carriers available because there had been a previous action at the Coral Sea in May of 1941 in which one of the Japanese carriers was badly damaged and the other one lost most of its airplanes and crews. So there were only four Japanese carriers at uh, Midway, and all four of them went to the bottom on the same day. 
One American carrier, the Yorktown, was also sunk, but instead of having an edge of six big carriers to three, now the Japanese had two big carriers to the Americans' four, and they never were able to catch up. What's more, Midway was terribly damaging to the Japanese in another way, or two other ways. One, not only did the aircraft carriers where they sunk, but all their planes were lost. And even worse than that, all those experienced, skilled, well-trained pilots who had been training for 10 years or less, all so many of them were killed or just uh, drowned when their ships went down or their planes were crashed. And so they were not alive to train new Japanese pilots. And it turned out that it took a long time to train a very equip, uh, very efficient pilot. And without the experience of all those pilots who were killed at Midway, the Japanese aviation service was decimated. They had lost four of their big carriers and all of the planes and many of the pilots. And now let's jump ahead two and a half years. After Midway, as I said, the Japanese could never catch up. Uh, their industrial base allowed them to build only one or two big ships at a time. By the time Midway was fought, six months after Pearl Harbor, the Americans were building nine new aircraft carriers and more behind that. And you can see what the problems for the Japanese were. Meanwhile, the Americans uh, adopted the strategy of island hopping. They'd uh, pick out one island in the Pacific and take that island behind the Japanese perimeter, and then the Japanese, had uh, this whole perimeter of islands linked together, would have to move back because they were, the Americans would be behind them. Two and a half years of island hopping brought the American fleet within range of the Philippines. Now, Japan had conquered the Philippines in the first days of the war, and uh, he had run the Philippines for the last two years or more. Just talking or reading from the book? Oh, I'm not reading anything. Oh, you're talking it, yeah. Okay, you heard me. <laughs> yes, I did. Um, so General MacArthur, when the American forces surrendered and he was taken off the Philippines, made that famous statement, I shall return. And in 1944 it was clear that the Americans were coming. The plan was to invade the Philippines, and the secret was uh, that the invasion would be at the island Leyte, one of the Philippine islands. I think it's something like the eighth largest of the Philippine islands. The Japanese were not uh, to be uh, surprised by this, they knew the Americans were going to invade the Philippines one of these days. And so beginning in the summer of 1944, the Japanese general staff, military general staff, planned what they called the show operation, SHO, which is supposed to mean, as I understand it, victory in Japanese. I don't know, if it, I don't know Japanese, but uh, that's what I'm told. The idea here was to organize 
massive attacks by land, sea, and air at the American landings once the Americans came. The Japanese have been waiting for the Americans to get out on a limb, and the idea is they were going to cut off the limb, destroy the landings at Leyte, and set back the American forces. And uh, if, with the aid of land-based air power, uh, because they only had uh, you know, a couple of big carriers left, uh, with land-based air power, they would destroy the American fleet and go on to survive uh, Japanese Empire to survive. Well, the show plan was very complicated, and there were some very serious flaws in the thinking, one of which was the Japanese could never decide on united command. They generally had several different people in different posts, in different services, all vying for the authority to make decisions. The Army did not get along with the Navy. The naval air uh, pilots didn't get along with the land-based air. And there was no coordinating body. The United States had the Joint Chiefs of Staff, still does. Japan had nothing like that. So that the problem of divided command hurt the Japanese throughout the war and continued to at Leyte. You know about Secondly, that? Secondly, Japan's lack of oil, the whole business that started the whole war for Japan, was crippling them as late as, as, late as 1944 because they didn't have the oil, they didn't have the refining capacity, they couldn't base all their great fleet of ships at the same place at the same time. There wasn't the oil available to run the ships. So they had to divide their navy into various regions, which, of course, uh, made things more complicated and more difficult, and meant that they spent a good deal of time trying to get pieces of the fleet together at the same time in the same place to fight a battle. And this was a major problem with the show plan, which depended on stopwatch timing, getting to the battle site at the right time and whatever. One of the uh, premises of the show plan was that the Japanese should strike the American landings in the first two days after the, the first American troops landed. Well, as the show plan worked out, they were not able to bring their forces together to make an attack at Leyte until... October 25th, which was five days after the Americans landed on Leyte on October 20th, 1944. So there were things wrong with the show plan right from the beginning. In fact, the question really was, and some of the uh, Japanese naval officers knew this, was the whole plan worth it, risking the, the Japanese fleet if they couldn't destroy the landings in the first two days anyway. Because by that time, by the five days had passed, everything would have been unloaded, and all the troops and equipment would have been ashore in the Philippines, and there wouldn't be anything for the ships to sink. Well, those uh, thoughts were not uh, absent from the minds of some of the Japanese officers. 
All right, the show plan involved dividing the Japanese fleets into three regional areas. One was to be known as the Southern Force, and it was based in the East Indies at Brunei, and it was to attack the Philippine landings at Leyte by coming up from the south. The second force was called the Central Force. It also was based in the East Indies, and it was the biggest and most powerful of all the three forces, and its job was to come from the west into Leyte Gulf through San Bernardino Strait. The third part of the force was called the Northern Force, and this was the most peculiar of all because it contained the four aircraft carriers that Japan had left. Only one of them was a fleet carrier the size of the ones at Pearl Harbor. It, in fact, was the last survivor of the six carriers at Pearl Harbor. And then there were three small carriers with it. Also, two battleships that had catapults uh, on the rear decks so that they could sort of be aircraft carriers and send off a plane or two once in a while. But the, the problem here was that beginning on October 10th, the United States fleet, not the troops yet, but the fleet, began to attack Japanese air bases, particularly in the Ryukyu Islands and at Formosa. The overall Japanese admiral, who was the head of um, most of the show plan, got nervous and saw the aerial attacks as time to execute the aerial part of the show plan. And so he called in every airplane he could find, and every Japanese plane he could find, and threw them all at the Americans at the Battle of Formosa. Among other things, he took all the airplanes from the Japanese carriers over the objections, of course, of the Admiral, uh, to serve as land-based planes attacking uh, the American ships in uh, Leyte. Well, it turned out to be a horrible mistake. The American pilots were so much better trained. The American planes, which had been inferior to the Japanese planes at the beginning of the war, by 1944 were superior, uh, faster and more, more maneuverable, and especially more armored for defense. Uh, some 600 Japanese aircraft were downed on a day or two in Formosa, depriving Japan of virtually any air cover. Now, the Japanese had invented, practically invented or perfected airplane carrier warfare. And now the carriers that they had left had no planes and no pilots. What happens to ships that get attacked by airplanes when there's no air cover for the ships, when they can't fight back in the air? The Battle of Leyte Gulf was a very good example of what happens. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned, the Japanese were in three forces, the Southern Force, the Central Force, and the Northern Force. The Northern Force, with the carriers, because it couldn't do anything effective anyway, was designated to be a decoy. 
it was to attack Leyte from the north, come down from the north, and draw part of the American fleet to the north, away from Leyte Gulf, to allow the central and southern forces to move into the Gulf and destroy the landings. So, in other words, the Japanese used their otherwise worthless carriers, because there were no planes and pilots, as a decoy, intending them to get sunk. Now, here we come to one instance in which the Americans had a similar problem to what the Japanese had, and that was in the area of command. There were two American fleets at that time uh, with carriers and battleships, you know, the complete series of ships. One was the third fleet under Admiral Halsey, and the other was the seventh fleet under Admiral Kincaid. Admiral Kincaid cooperated with and shared authority with General MacArthur on land. But Halsey was responsible to nobody other than the uh, Pacific Command in Hawaii under Admiral Nimitz. In other words, while Kincaid and MacArthur were working closely together, Halsey had an independent command not responsible to either of the other two. Halsey was an aggressive officer. Uh, He believed in total war, and he believed his mission was primarily offensive, to destroy the Japanese fleet if he got the chance. And his orders, in fact, said you are to destroy the fleet if you get a chance. But he had an independent command, which meant he made the decisions as to where his ships went and when they went there. And that was to cause a terrific problem later. All right, now let's look at what happened beginning on October 10th uh, in the Philippines. First, I mentioned the air attacks on the Americans by the Japanese, which resulted in terrible losses to the Japanese counterattacks. They had ships sunk, shipping was destroyed, commercial shipping was destroyed, ground installations were destroyed, and, of course, all those 600 or more planes and many of their pilots. But the the surviving Japanese pilots who had attacked Halsey's fleet reported that they had sunk carrier after carrier. What they'd actually sunk were smaller ships that looked as if they were carriers to these untrained pilots who weren't very good at ship recognition, And it's a very difficult thing to recognize what kind of a ship it is anyway, even if you're trained at it. And so they sent back reports that Halsey's third fleet had been destroyed. And it was three days before the admiral in charge finally realized that Halsey's third fleet was very much not destroyed, but that his aircraft had all been destroyed instead. The first American landings of uh, engineers at Leyte Gulf took place on October 17th. The engineers landed to prepare the roads and the, uh, what would you say, the uh, bases for the use of the troops who were to come later. And those uh, engineers met little resistance. And on the 20th of October the main landings occurred. 
Japanese commander, overall commander, Toyota, not Toyota, but Toyota, uh, who was the closest thing they had to a, a supreme commander on the field, ordered the implementation of the show plan, a mass attack on the late landings. But the problem was, first of all, he didn't have any airplanes left, and secondly, his ships were so spread out and scattered that they couldn't even get to Leyte, even if they hadn't been opposed, until the morning of the 25th. And that is, of course, five days after the landings, and the question was, was this going to make any use anyway? From now on, we'll take a look at the timetable of what, is, what happened. On the 20th, the northern force under Admiral Ozawa, the decoy force, sailed from the home islands. On October 22nd, wait a minute, uh, let's go back a second. Uh, on the way to the rendezvous, the commander of the southern force, Admiral Kurita, had a talk with his officers. They were complaining that they were going to risk this whole fleet for nothing. It would be too late to destroy the landings anyway. Kurita, the admiral in charge, replied, what good is the fleet if the nation doesn't survive? And that's a very relevant question. What good was the fleet to anybody if it couldn't stop the Americans from uh, taking uh, victory after victory? All right, so Admiral Kurita and his ships departed from their base in the, in the East Indies on the 22nd of October. But they had to choose a, a way to go. And with no air cover, they were very, very afraid of getting too close to American land-based planes. And so Kurita chose a long way around, supposedly safer, although he made another bad decision, uh, and that was he sent some of his slower ships by a shorter route, figuring that uh, you know, it would take them longer to get there, and his longer route would be faster, had the faster ships, and they'd get together when they got to the Leyte. But that meant he was dividing his force. He started out with 30-some-odd ships. He detached seven of them under an admiral's name uh, named Nishimura and sent them by way of Surigao Strait, leading to Leyte from the south. There were also seven other ships that had been stranded in the, the East Indies with no mission under Admiral Shima, and they told him to Surigao Strait. But, again, this business of divided command. Nishimura had no control of Shima, and Shima had no control over Nishimura. So here you had 14 ships with two admirals, each one commanding seven ships, and neither one of them under control of either of the others. That's just inviting trouble. Now, Nishimura and Shima left different ports in the East Indies on the 22nd. And Kurita left the longer run with uh, the remaining ships of his command on the same day. Midnight, October 22nd. Kurita's ships approached the southern entrance to Palawan Passage, 
which was infested with American submarines. They chose to risk the submarines rather than risk the airplanes. And again, uh, the decision backfired. Two American submarines were on patrol and uh, got news that Korea's ships were coming. The two American submarines attacked with their torpedoes, hit three ships, and sank two of them. And so Corita's force was immediately diminished, even before he got close to Leyte. This was the first action of the battle on the morning of October 23, 1944. Not only did Corita lose two ships completely and one more damaged, but he had to send escorts with those ships, the damaged ship, in order to see that that ship got out of danger. And so he lost five of his 22 ships immediately through battle loss and by having to send escorts with the damaged ship. All right. The United States, meanwhile, the submarine attack not only caused damage, but told the American commanders exactly where Corita was. And the next morning, after dawn, the United States sent torpedo planes and bombing planes over the fleet and caused a great deal of damage during the day, October 24th, uh, sinking one of the biggest ships in the world, the Musashi, which was one of the two biggest battleships ever built, and they sunk it entirely by air power. Hmm. The Musashi was a huge ship, well, completely armored, and for those of the battleship admirals, this must have been a terribly, terribly upsetting thing to happen, because by air power alone, the Musashi was sunk planes fired 21 torpedoes into that ship and bombed her almost as many times. What happens when you have no airplanes to cover your ships? The other side's air power can dominate any ship, however big and however well-armed, or however well-armored. Well, Corita uh, had a problem with this. Uh, he was uh, daunted by the attack on uh, the attacks on Musashi and the other ships, and so he turned around and delayed for a while getting to get reorganized. By this time, he had only four battleships left, ten cruisers, and eleven destroyers. In other words, out of his original thirty-three ships, he only had the uh, let's see, what fourteen? Some about twenty left. <laughs> Then he turned back towards San Bernardino Strait, which was the gateway to Leyte Gulf. This all happened on the 24th. Meanwhile, the southern force came up through Surigao Strait, to Surigao Strait. This was the double command force of Nishimura and Shima. Together they had 14 ships, six old battleships, eight cruisers, and then they also had a bunch of uh, destroyers with them. The American 7th Fleet, Kincaid's fleet, was there to defend. They again knew that the Japanese were coming, and when they were coming, and how they were coming. 
Kincaid appointed an officer named Jesse Ohlendorf to command his battleships. These were ships, a couple or two or three of which, had been sunk at Pearl Harbor and then were raised and restored to action. They were slow, they were outdated, but they had big guns. He also had cruisers and a whole bunch of destroyers and 39 PT boats. Now, a strait is a narrow place. That's what strait means in nautical terms. So they knew that when Nishimura and Shima came, they would have to come in single file because the strait was so narrow so that only one ship at a time could move north into the strait. So you had a long line of 14 ships, seven by Nishimura at the head, and then an hour or so behind him, seven more by Shima, under Shima. This gave Ohlendorf the chance to do what every naval commander for hundreds of years had longed to do and never had a chance to do most of the time. If you think of the strait as a narrow pathway, like a highway, and you think of the open water at the top of the strait as a wide highway, a very wide highway, where do you put your big, powerful ships? You put them at the patrolling back and forth at the top end of the strait so that they're always showing a broadside to the ships coming up the strait one at a time. This is the tactic in naval, naval fighting called crossing the T, and it's what Admiral Togo did to the Russians. It has been done many times in the past, but never as many times as the naval people wanted to happen because it's the ideal way to fight a naval battle. Your ships can use all of their guns on one side at one time, and they had six big battleships, remember, all firing at one ship, the leading ship coming up the the, uh, the, the uh, stem of the T. And that means that that one ship is being attacked from every direction and can only fire its forward guns. It can't reach those other ships with its, with its port guns. So what do you think happens when you cross the T? The side that crosses the T has a huge, a huge advantage in destroying the other fleet. And that's what happened to Nishimura and Shima. Of the 14 ships the Japanese brought to, uh, brought to the Surigao Strait on October 25, 1944, exactly two, well, actually, no, not, not two, but five, five survived. Of the Nishimura, six of the seven, including all the battleships and cruisers, were sunk immediately. Shima, who had a little more time and saw what was happening, turned around and lost two of his big ships, but his destroyers and one other cruiser escaped. But it was a decisive victory, revenge for the old battleships who had been sunk at Pearl Harbor, and it was the total destruction of the southern force The central force had been hit, and the biggest, one of the biggest ships sunk. The southern force had been destroyed. Exactly. Korea's central force, however, still had some fight left in it. Oh, 
And the next day, October 20th, he got through San Bernardino straight all right without being attacked by air, although there had been air attacks that morning. But he got right through the straight, and he wondered why. He said, well, what a wonderful thing. The Americans aren't there. Well, that's what was the problem. Because that morning, Admiral Halsey heard that the his scout planes had found that the Japanese northern force, the Detroit force, 200 miles approaching from this from that direction. Halsey had no way of knowing that the Japanese carriers had no planes. You know, you see an aircraft carrier, you figure it's got airplanes on it. Especially because this was, you know, this was the the end of the war, toward the end of the war, and everybody knew that few carriers left, only the one big one and some small ones. And Halsey said, "Well, they're not going to risk those carriers with no planes. They must have planes aboard." And so he decided to use his authority to make a run to the north and destroy those Japanese carriers figuring that that would probably end the naval war because without naval aviation, you're not going to be able to win against the side that has it. And Halsey had a overwhelming superiority. There were 17 ships in Ozawa's uh, northern force, four carriers, three of them small. Halsey had 10 aircraft carriers and... 60 ships overall against 17. It should have been a horrible wipeout. But it wasn't. Uh, Meanwhile, Halsey's move away from San Bernardino Strait left that strait uncovered. Halsey had justification for this. He says Kincaid's got enough ships to uh, protect the strait all by himself. And besides, we heard that uh, the central force, the Karina's force, had been hit and hurt. So it's not as powerful as it was. But it wasn't completely hit and hurt as much as Halsey had thought it was, and he had still four battleships left, including another giant. That one's called the... uh, Oh, what is the name of it? I forgot for a second. Um, It'll come back to me. Yamato. Yamato. Uh, as big as the Musashi. And here you had nothing guarding that strait. The, the gate to, way to Leyte was open if Corita uh, could get his force through it in time. Well, he started. You know, Halsey was up north chasing uh, Ozawa's carriers, and there was nobody guarding San Bernardino Strait. He got his ships through and then began to attack the American ships that he found on the other side of the strait. These turned out to be a group of light escort carriers. These were not big ships. They had no heavy armor. They had very few planes. They were designed for escorting destroyers and other ships. And they were not designed to win a battle against a big battleships or uh, major major military forces. For two hours, Corita had nothing in front of him but these 
carriers, these what they call Jeep carriers, three destroyers, and some uh, four destroyer escorts. That's all there were. A total of, what, 10, 13 ships against Corita's, oh, how many, 8, 4, 12, 23. And for two full hours, those outnumbered, totally helpless uh, ships fought Corita to a standstill and dis- disrupted his attack to the point where he eventually decided this is this is futile. He thought those carriers were bigger than they were, and he thought they were faster than they were. And he feared that if he stayed too long, he'd be pounded by air power again. And so he turned around and left the what remained of the opposing fleet, just left it there, and went turned around and bent back towards Japan. He didn't go back to Japan, but he went back to the south, uh, to the East Indies. This was an incredible situation. First, Halsey leaves the strait unguarded, and then Kurita doesn't take advantage of it by even trying to get into Leyte Gulf. Uh, He should have been able to wipe out those escort carriers and destroyers and sail into the Gulf. So it's one mistake against another mistake. Anyway, Halsey's ships did find Zawa and uh, did sink the four carriers, but the admiral of the fleet, uh, the Japanese fleet, Ozawa, was a very outstanding officer, and he not only managed to get away with losing, what, six ships, I think, out of his 17, uh, he got away. And his ruse, his decoy, was totally successful because it did exactly what it was supposed to do. It pulled Halsey's whole fleet away from San Bernardino Strait. And it did the Japanese no good at all because bad communications because of Karita's somewhat uh, questionable decision-making. And on October 25th, the Japanese were left at the end of the battle with 26 ships sunk. 26 of their ships were sunk, including the one big carrier, three battleships, three lighter carriers, six heavy cruisers, four light cruisers, and nine destroyers. All went to the bottom in three days. The Japanese Navy was essentially eliminated as a major force. It had no carriers left. It had one big battleship and a couple of um, some cruisers and some destroyers. And that's all that was left. And it was all in the East Indies. And it stayed in the East Indies until the surrender the following year. And so the greatest naval battle of World War II and the last great naval battle in history came to an end. What decided it? Well, first of all, the fact that the Japanese had no naval air, no air cover whatsoever. And that was partly the fault of the admiral who ordered all the airplanes to Formosa uh, prematurely and found them all get shot down. Secondly, Corita's decision-making, which was not good. He chose a wrong route. 
he chose to divide his fleet before getting to the object, to the uh, target. And uh, it's an axiom in uh, military force that you organize your forces so that they are all together at the point of contact, not separate where they can be destroyed uh, one at a time, serially. And uh, that's what the uh, Japanese admiral did. He allowed his forces to be attacked piecemeal and reduced and in one sense, one instance totally destroyed. Third, and this is more important in the long run, what beat the Japanese was what caused them to start the war. The lack of resources, and particularly oil. The oil kept them from running all their ships together in the first place. Why did the, the northern force have to come from Japan and the southern forces had to come from the East Indies? Because they couldn't all be based in the same place at the same time for lack of oil. And fourth, the Japanese didn't have a lot of good luck, and they were against an overwhelmingly powerful American force. The lack of coordination on the Japanese side didn't help them. It hurt them. But it also hurt the Americans in the sense that uh, Halsey made the decision to leave the strait uncovered. So both sides made mistakes. Both sides fought valiantly. Both sides were capable. But the outcome was totally one-sided. What happened after Leyte Gulf? Well, this was October 1944, and basically the Japanese Navy was done. But something else happened during the battle that nobody anticipated and turned out to be a very useful and very horrifying tactic. On October 20th, one of the Japanese naval officials came to a conclusion that had been uh, thought about for a long time and had been based on a practice the Japanese pilots often did when they were being shot down. They would crash their planes into the ship that was shooting at them deliberately, killing themselves but attacking the ship with bombs on the airplane. This Japanese officer came up with the idea of recruiting a corps of pilots who would deliberately hurl their airplanes at the American carriers and the American ships, killing themselves but causing potentially great damage. And, of course, that's called, we know them as the kamikazes. Kamikaze is a Japanese word meaning divine wind, and it goes back centuries to a battle which was decided because the, uh, between the Japanese and the Mongols which was decided because a great wind came up at the right time and saved the Japanese fleet. Mm-hmm. Well, the kamikazes were first used on October 25th at Leyte. Uh, at the beginning, there were something like 17 of them who flew their planes into American ships and, in one case, sunk a jeep carrier. Uh, 17 pilots. They damaged a number of other ships. And in fact, they were the most effective weapon the Japanese had at the Battle of Leyte Gulf. And that was uh, something that the Japanese took a uh, lesson from. They expanded the Kamikaze Corps, the Special Attack Corps, 
And at the succeeding Battle of Okinawa, which was the last great battle in the Pacific, the kamikazes did extreme damage to the American fleet yeah. uh, to the point where one out of every seven American sailors who was killed in the war was killed at Okinawa. One out of seven after four years of war and counting Pearl Harbor. And the kamikazes were effective, and they kept the war going for several months after Leyte. And Leyte was their first appearance. So that's what happened at the end of World War II. Uh, the Americans had totally destroyed the Japanese Navy and isolated Japan from whatever resources there were left. And the Japanese probably should have surrendered after Leyte. They did eventually surrender not only after Okinawa, but after the dropping of the atomic bomb, of course, in uh, July of 1945. But the war went on for, let's see, how many months? From October to July is about nine more months, nine and ten boy. months after Leyte. But basically, the war, the, the war was really over at Leyte because the Japanese, after that, had no chance to win and probably should have surrendered right then. So all that happened 70 years ago this week. And I hope maybe you were entertained and maybe learned something. We certainly did it. October 20 is my wife's birthday, so I'll never forget Leyte Golf. <laughs> I, I was usual an outstanding uh, That was the day of the lady October 20th. Yeah, that's her birthday. Uh, do we have any questions from anyone, you. please? So, Thank you very much, sir. Very interesting. Yeah, anybody got any questions or anything? Don. Don, do you, are you here? Okay, we were having some technical issues, too. I want to ask you, then no one realized that Japan would run out of oil, that there's, it's a no-win naval war there in the Pacific? I mean, they just ignored Yamamoto and just hoped to get the um, East Indies, or what? I mean, are you talking about before? Early, too. You know, Pearl Harbor, they weren't going to knock us out in six months. Yamamoto was absolutely right. But they just ignored him? I mean... He was right about everything. He was right about the way he organized the Pearl Harbor attack, and he was right, right about what would happen six months afterwards. But they continued, obviously. They, they just didn't yeah. listen to him. Well, of course, Japan wasn't ready to surrender in 1942. No. no. But they almost certainly should have surrendered by 1944. By the way, I've relied heavily on a book here about Leyte by Stanley L. Falk called Decision at Leyte. Okay. In the book, he quotes the emperor, Hirohito, who <laughs> after the war, according to this book, uh, said to one of his surviving naval officers, wasn't our, uh, our uh, use of our ships at Leyte uh, the wrong thing to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, of course, uh, that's a question. If the emperor asks it, you don't say no. <laughs> There's a book out about Hirohito and his position in the, Jap in the uh, Japanese war. Uh, we do know that he was... Uh, the emperor is not supposed to take part in politics. No. He's supposed to be immortal, supposed to be a, a descendant of the sun god. Sun god, yes. But uh, Hirohito did take part in the sense that he allowed it to be known how he felt mm. about things. 
And when the atomic bomb was dropped, uh, the prime minister, I think it was, approached him and said, uh, what shall we do? The emperor didn't say what we should do, but he allowed the um, uh, prime minister to get the idea that he wanted the war over yes. to save Japan, the, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, terrible experience of being invaded. If, if the Japanese home islands had had... Don Queen again. The okay. estimate was that it would cost a million American lives yes. and maybe two or three million Japanese lives. Wow. And there was, there was hope they'd go into 1947, I think, just continue fighting. Don, do you have a question? I knew you just came in, it sounds like, but you were out. You were in here. Yes, I was. I got it. Okay. Do you have a I, question uh, off. before we end here? Well, yeah, just quick... Uh, well, how much how much did the resources did the U.S. put against Japan versus Europe? Now, say that again. How much did what? Uh, uh, the percentage of their resources. They, well, they don't have resources. No, no, I meant the Americans. He said how much resources did the Americans put in against Japan, Don? Is that right? Yeah, as against Europe. Versus oh, Europe. Well, uh, from the beginning, the primary enemy was Germany. It was decided as early as 1940-42 uh, between Britain, the United States, and Russia that the most dangerous and most powerful enemy was Germany mm -hmm. and that the uh, Allies would concentrate on Germany first. The fact that uh, Midway was so successful for the United States meant that the United States was able to move against Japan much more, fa much more quickly and much more effectively than had been anticipated. Uh, the war against Japan lasted from 19, December 41 to uh, what was it, August of 45, 45. A, a little bit um, around three and a half years. Mm -hmm. And in that time, of course, they crossed 10,000 miles of the Pacific. Wow. So, okay, uh, any other questions before Japan we conclude? The secondary enemy. The primary focus was always on Germany until the defeat of the Nazi Germany. Germany. Yeah. I, I read a book by Patrick Buchanan who claims that the Japanese had been wonderful allies during World War II and we gave them poor treatment and that's the reason that they turned on us in World War II. <laughs> they were friends in World War I but not in World War II? Well, I think that's probably a little simplistic. Japan was on the Allied side in World yeah, War I. And they did well, you said. Japan came out of World War I but pretty good. What they were on the Allied side for was they wanted yeah. islands that Germany had as colonies in the Pacific. That's right. That's what he right. said, yeah. Well, he and talked about they that. They got yeah, those islands after yeah. the war. And, yeah, yeah he, and he said their attack on the Japanese... What they did in China was no different than what the British had and true. the other Europeans had done before. Oh, well, it's probably true, but well, no. I think I think that's not true because okay. the, the Japanese invasion of China. Have you ever heard of the rape of Nanking? Yeah. yeah. Oh yes, yeah. they were much worse. Oh, they were horrible. Yeah. Everybody, right. even Asia than the Germans, Japanese, yeah, still yeah. does. Yeah. Koreans hate the Japanese to this day. Oh yes, oh yes. For what the Japanese did in Korea. Wow. Well, so, Ivan, we want to thank you again, as usual. Sorry for the technical uh, issues, but we got through it. And I thank you so very much, and we'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you, Bob. And thank Rachel for me. She really helped a lot. <laughs> okay. Good night. Good night, and thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.
Bye now. Bye. Bye. Bye.